0: last time on Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.
1: This case involves three different murders. I'm going to start at the beginning of the case that you are here to decide, which is the murder of Susan Berman.
0: That was Catherine Cutter calling 911 to report that her neighbor Susan Berman's dog had strayed from her home And that Berman's back door was wide open.
1: So officers, they go in. Susan is on the floor. There's a small pool of blood around her head. And they very quickly realize that, in fact, she is deceased. We have to talk about who is Robert Durst. Bob Durst is very honest about the fact that the rules don't apply to him.
2: Who's Kathy Durst? I first met Kathy at a party at my friend Stuart Altman. Took her.
3: And when you first met her, I guess, at the party, what, what was your first uh, reaction to her? Pretty. These experiences with her family were kind of like Bob meets the average American family. Bob is forced to spend time with the average American family.
1: As Kathy became more independent to Bob Durst, sure. he began to lose control. I said, I told you from the beginning I didn't want children.
2: Um, now you're telling me you want you're pregnant, which you know you're in charge of that stuff, not me. And you want to keep the baby. Keep the baby, you're going to get divorced from me.
0: Period. So Robert Durst changed tactics he tried to control Kathy with violence. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and Acast.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: It's late in the afternoon on the first day of opening statements, and the jury appears fatigued. The panel consists of eight women and four men who were meticulously selected by the attorneys over several weeks. Now in the jury box, a woman who works as a geographic systems engineer sits beside a man who is a retired FBI special agent. One share over is a woman raised in the Philippines who now has a career as a nurse then there's the midwestern software engineer the clinical pharmacist the management services worker the studious pathologist the retired teacher and the bespectacled poet there's the juror who called durst a charming psychopath during voir dire, a skeptical woman who has never seen the jinx and a mathematician who initially thought that the trial was for fred durst the lead singer of limp biscuit like all juries it's a motley crew, diverse in age, race, and tax bracket. Were it not for this trial, these individuals would probably never cross paths. But now they will spend months together deciding one man's fate. After hours upon hours of opening statements, many of the jurors are looking at the clock. But Deputy DA John Lewin is still firing on all cylinders.
1: The evidence is show there. The defendant responded to Kathy's growing independence by attempting to regain control
3: and violence. Uh, She said the two of you went to a party and that you were both drunk and you came home and that was the first time that she remembers uh, that you had hit her. You had an argument and that that you slapped her or something like that. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember the first time I had slapped her or hit her. Do you remember other times that... that uh... Oh, yeah.
2: By, by, by 1981, her life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling.
0: Fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. Durst might not remember the first time he hit Kathy, but he doesn't deny that their fights got physical. In the winter of 1981, Kathy was months away from becoming a doctor, and she wanted a divorce. Deputy D.A. John Lewin tells the jury that when the domestic abuse didn't control Kathy, Robert became angry. According to Lewin, the evidence will show he was angry enough to commit murder. To illustrate Durst's pattern of domestic abuse, he plays a video of Durst's commentary for the movie All Good Things. In the clip, Durst discusses a true event that happened at a party that is dramatically portrayed in the film. After a number of years,
2: before I would go to her family's house for a function, I would insist that uh, we agree on how long we're going to stay. Two hours, three hours, four hours. We would always do a negotiation. When the time was up, I was ready to leave. Same the story about the hair two different ways. One way, I drag her out of the house by her hair. The other way, I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Prior 1 is close enough.
0: Years later, Andrew Jarecki asked Durst about the incident while interviewing him for the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. These interviews have become a staple of Lewin's opening statement, allowing the jury to hear a more unfiltered version of Robert than his prior court appearances or interviews with detectives.
3: Do you remember the feeling of, uh, of that happening as we're sitting here? Do you remember the, the, the feeling of walking into the house, of going to get her? Does that?
2: Yes, total anger. We're not doing this. It was me being the dominant one. If we agree on two hours, it's going to be two hours. The same thing with having a child. You agreed that we weren't going to have children. You got yourself pregnant. You want to get an abortion, you can get an abortion. You want to have the child, you're going to get divorced. And the hair pulling wasn't even the worst. And the
0: hair pulling wasn't even the worst. Lewin next tells the jury that the evidence will show that Durst's violence was not solely directed at Kathy. In 1981, Durst had a physical altercation with one of Kathy's acquaintances, a photographer named Peter Schwartz. The
1: evidence is going to show that on February 1st, 1981... Kathy invited some friends over to the East 86th Street apartment in Manhattan. And one of those friends was a local photographer named Peter Schwartz who didn't know Bob Durst. You're going to hear videotape testimony from him of what happened that night.
0: We hear Lewin's fellow prosecutor, Habib Balian, questioning Schwartz in a prior hearing. There is the distraction of a creaking chair, but as Schwartz describes a shocking act of violence, the jury sits... Riveted. Were there any other males in
1: the room when Robert Durst arrived?
4: I was the only male.
3: Uh, while I was standing there, he looked at Kathy, and then he looked over at me, and he said, well, you're the only man here. You're the only guy here.
1: What happened next after he said, well, you're the only guy here? He rushed forward
3: and kicked me in the eye. I was sitting on the floor with my back against the radiator. When he rushed forward, even though I was, uh, I had my knees up and my arms over my knees, he kicked between my legs and between my arms and uh, kicked me under the right eye, fracturing it, fracturing the bone.
1: Peter Schwartz ended up having a broken orbital bone. It was not a a minor injury. He reported the incident to the NYPD's 19th precinct at the time.
0: Lewin's PowerPoint displays a photograph of a massive contusion under Schwartz's right eye. The damage is graphic, skin pulled tight with swelling and bruised a grotesque dark purple. While the testimony regarding Durst's abuse of Kathy was emotionally gripping, this picture provides a visual representation of Durst's aggression. It's visceral proof of Durst's capacity for violence not just against his wife, but towards anyone who crosses his path. Soon after the incident with Peter Schwartz, Kathy and Robert began living separately. Kathy spent most of her time in the 86th Street apartment while Robert resided in the penthouse on Riverside Drive. During that time, Kathy and Robert exchanged acrimonious letters. Kathy wanted her things back from the penthouse. It seemed divorce was on the horizon. By the fall of 1981, the couple saw each other sparingly. On occasions when they did interact, Robert lashed out at Kathy, causing her to fear for her life.
1: Sometime, it appears in September, they were having an argument in their penthouse at Riverside Drive. And in the middle of a rainstorm, Kathy climbs out the window onto a balcony And she sought refuge in the neighboring
0: penthouse. Durst discussed that fight in the 2010 commentary of All Good Things.
2: It was pouring and we were having a wrestling, shoving type fight. And she ran out on the terrace and ran into their apartment. Said she was afraid to come home. Said she doesn't want to go home, she doesn't have to come home.
3: When she said she was afraid or afraid to come home, did you feel like that was something she was saying to the neighbor as a kind of a, a way of making things public or trying to pressure you? Or did she f- you feel like she was really afraid to come home? I had no idea.
2: I didn't really care one way or the other what she did. It was late and I was just tired.
1: Ann Anderson Doyle and her husband, Kevin, occupied that adjacent penthouse at 37 Riverside Drive she's going to tell you that in the middle of the night in a rainstorm Kathy's pounding on their window terrified she's going to tell you that Kathy told her that Bob Durst had beaten and that he had threatened her she's going to tell you that Kathy said she literally feared for her life and the evidence is going to show that Kathy told her that Durst had a gun, and that she was afraid that he was going to shoot her. That was Kathy's life about five months before he was going to kill her.
0: Kathy's fear in the rainstorm, the wrestling, the beating, the pounding on the glass, and the alleged threat of Durst's gun, brings to mind a moment during jury selection. A woman appearing to be in her 60s was asked whether or not Durst's age and infirmities automatically caused her to believe that he could not have committed the murders involved in the case. The woman shook her head. She revealed that an elderly member of her family had been convicted of sexual assault against another family member. While Durst's violence may not have been sexual in nature, his domestic aggression may strike a familiar chord. That woman now sits in the jury box
4: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: In the fall of 1981, Kathy began her fourth and final year of medical school. Despite Kathy's growing independence, she remained married to Durst, and his abuse continued to escalate.
1: January 6, 1982, 24 days before Bob Durst was going to kill her. On that day, she goes to Jacoby Medical Center. You're going to hear evidence that Jacoby Medical Center was a part of Albert Einstein, the medical school Kathy went to. She literally goes there, and she explains to them that she has been a victim of Domestic violence. Now, the evidence is going to show that she does not tell the doctor that Bob Durst is the one who did it. Like a, a lot of women in that situation, she was afraid, embarrassed, and she didn't reveal who her matter was.
0: When interviewing Durst for the jinx, Andrew Jarecki asked about his physical fights with Kathy and if they ever left a mark. Did
2: you
3: ever create any marks on her face? Or did no, you create No, a... I never
2: saw any marks on her face and I wouldn't hit her in the face.
3: Did you, if you were gonna have a physical altercation with her, what would typically happen? Would Pushing
2: you? Pushing and shoving and get out of here or whatever it was. Uh, I never hit her in the face. I never saw anything on her face and neither did anybody else ever see anything on her
1: face. For the actual show, as you, the clip that Mr. Durst did not deny that he would assault Kathy. What he said was, I never hit her in the face. And if you watched, he then made a move, punching forward with his fists.
0: Lewin seems to imply that Durst was calculated in his domestic violence. He assaulted Kathy, but avoided hitting her hard in the face where the bruising could draw attention from her friends or the doctors she worked with. In 2010, Jarecki confronted Durst about Kathy's trip to the hospital.
3: So your uh, your sense of this Jacoby Hospital visit is that if the guys at Jacoby Hospital wrote a report that said that she had... never saw any such report, police didn't either. So Mr. Durst absolutely denied that
2: that incident happened. However, there's
1: reports from the hospital. January 6, 1982. What the report says is 29-year-old female with history of blunt trauma to left side of the face, patient allegedly slapped with hand. That's what she told the doctor.
0: Even after Kathy's trip to the hospital, she still saw Robert Durst. Their lives were financially entwined and their divorce not yet finalized. Like many victims of domestic abuse, it seemed that Kathy's relationship with Durst was emotionally complicated. John Lewin tells the jury that the evidence will show that despite the violence, Kathy still cared for Robert.
1: Despite the tension of the domestic violence and the situation, I and mean, they still spent time together. And one of those times was Sunday, January 31st, 1982. Um, they were together at the Lakeside Cottage in South Salem, New York. January 31st, 1982 would also be the last day of Kathy's life because that evening, her husband, Bob, was going to kill her. That afternoon, Kathy went to a party at her friend Gilberta Najami's house.
0: While at the party, Kathy received a call from Durst. He was angry. He wanted her to come home.
1: Now, and Najami's sister, Fatima was also at that party. She's gonna tell you that she was present when Kathy took a phone call from Bob. She's gonna tell you she could not hear Bob's end of the conversation, but she could hear part of Kathy's.
0: Lewin plays a clip of Fadwa Najami's testimony from a prior hearing.
1: There was
2: something going on with Bobby, and she was upset about that. And the phone rang, Bobby called
1: Gilberta's phone. Did her demeanor at all change when she hung up the phone? It was kind of like, he's really pissed, I have to go. Now yeah, the evidence going to show that after the call, Kathy left. She drove from Connecticut back to the South Salem residence, which was about an hour away. Now the next day, Monday, February 1st, 1982, Kathy was supposed to begin her first day of an ambulatory pediatric clinic at Bronx Memorial
0: Hospital. But Kathy never made it to the hospital. She never started her rotations in that ambulatory pediatric clinic and she never graduated from med school. Because after January 31st, 1982, Kathy disappeared. Robert Durst reported his wife's disappearance on February 4th, four days after Gilberta's party, and three days after she failed to show up for rotations at the hospital. He filed the missing persons report in Manhattan's 20th precinct, where he was interviewed by Detective Mike Strzok. Lewin recounts to the jury what Robert told the detective.
1: The story that Bob Durst related regarding Sunday night, January 31st was the following. He said Kathy returned from Gilberta's party. He said they had a sandwich. Durst put Kathy on a train back to New York City. He then said he visited his neighbors. That's going to be the mayor's. And he wasn't doing anything nefarious. He said he spoke with Kathy by phone between 11 and 11.15 p.m. She seemed fine. She was watching TV in their Riverside Drive penthouse.
0: It was a normal, boring night. They ate a sandwich. She took the train home. That's what Roberts said in 1982. But when Jarecki interviewed him for the Jinx in 2010, his story was a little different.
1: Durst actually admitted that they had a violent argument that night.
0: So the night that she disappeared, that,
3: uh, that Sunday night, or the last night that you saw um, I think, uh, do you want to take me through what you remember ever happening that night? She gets back from the
2: 30s, maybe 7 or whatever, angrily loaded, uh, walks around the house, leaps up, and announces that she wants to go to the city. I so said, you can go to the city if you want, but you, you, you can't drive, and I'm not going to go to the city.
3: So you could drive because of her condition? You can drive
2: kind I mean, Her condition didn't bother me at all. We only had one car. We just had the Mercedes up there. So she wasn't, I wasn't going to go back uh, Sunday night. The car and me and the dog were staying in South Saint, You can't take the phone for the candles Sunday night anyway. So if she wants to go to the city, she can take the train. And she says, no, I'm taking the car. And I went got the keys out of the car, and she's not taking the car because I'm not giving her the keys.
0: Was that argument
2: just a verbal argument? You no, know, that was a pushing and shoving argument.
0: Lewin points out that Durst's account of the events that occurred the night of January 31st has other troubling inconsistencies.
1: Bob Durst literally tells the detective, I was with... Bill Mayer. Of course, the detective's gonna talk to Bill Mayer, you would think. detective talks to Bill Mayer? This is what
2: Bill Mayer says. He just, I assume, fabricated that story without ever coming here for a drink or even discussing with us in any way. So he didn't ask us to lie for him. He just, I guess, kind of fibbed for himself.
1: Now, in 2010, the evidence is going to show that one of the big shocking details that emerged from the Jarecki and Smurley interviews is that for the first time ever, Durst is going to casually admit that the story about going back to the neighbor's house was a complete fabrication. And he's going to explain why it was he said that. And if you listen to his explanation, you're going to understand who Bob Durst is.
3: And... Um then
2: we went to the mayor's. Yeah, that's right. I told the police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away.
0: Yeah, that's what I told the police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away.
2: The uh, mayor took her to the train station and oh, went to sleep.
0: I didn't go to the mayor's. I took her to the train station and went home and went to sleep.
2: And why, why would that have made everything go away?
0: I went the
2: mayor's. They wanted to hear me, What did you do? So I told them I did that. I, mean, I just never got through my mind. It was like a negotiation. You tell somebody something, and well, that's it. Uh, they don't go back there. They don't, they don't look for motives. Why is he telling me this kind of thing? I thought that would get them to leave me alone and accept the missing person right like back. In February of
0: 1982, Robert told the press the same story that he told the police, emphasizing that he spoke to Kathy over the phone on Sunday night when she was in bed watching TV. Lewin tells the jury that like Roberts' visit to the mayors, the evidence will show that the phone call never happened.
1: During the 2010 interviews, again, for the first time, Durst admits, you know what? I never talked to Kathy that night. That was a lie that I told to, quote, put her in the city.
2: That was the last part of my, you know, the police are going to leave you alone now. I said, I I said, I called her. And I said, I stopped at a payphone on the way home. Or I went out for a walk later, and I I called her from the payphone. She answered the the phone, and that puts her in the city. And uh, they're going to leave me alone now.
1: Just to clear up any possible misunderstanding, etc., Durst was specifically asked, did you speak to her that night? Did you ever speaking to her that night?
0: No. Yeah. Durst later explained to Jarecki his state of mind after Kathy's disappearance.
2: Reporter missing, it's their problem. Put her on the train, she came to the city, I don't know where she is, she's not going to medical school. There's got to be
3: something wrong. <laughs> now was going to become their problem to figure out yes, what the truth was. the police was. look for missing persons. What am
2: I
1: supposed to do? So I was going to show that Bob Durst's wife disappears. And his response, his level of concern was to say, it's not my job. What the police do.
0: With the police and the press asking questions, Durst needed help with his public image. Which brings us back to Susan Berman.
1: Now it was at this point in time, he enlists the help of his trusted and close friend, Susan Berman, to be his spokesperson. Now, Dirth and Susan immediately began to disparage Kathy to the police, suggesting that she had a role in her own disappearance. Susan Berman, was interviewed by Detective Strzok and she tells Detective Strzok that Kathy would use Quaaludes and that she thinks that the disappearance had something to do with drugs. Friends say that she's spending $1,000 per week on drugs. That's the story that Susan Bergman is peddling. Now the evidence is going to show it's not true. Kathy Durst doesn't have $1,000 a week spent on drugs. Kathy Durst is borrowing money to pay for her tuition and Kathy Durst is going to medical school, doing rotations and dealing with patients and getting good evaluations that she prepares to graduate and start her residency.
0: Robert spread similar stories to the press. He said that Kathy was doing poorly in medical school, that she was using drugs, and that she had some sort of quasi-breakdown. When asked what he thought happened to Kathy, Robert told the New York Post that he wondered whether Kathy's cocaine habit got her involved with bad elements who might somehow be responsible for her disappearance. Lewin clicks to the next slide on his PowerPoint. It's blank except for a heading that reads, Summary of Durst's Version of Events. As Lewin speaks, Durst's statements regarding January 31st, 1982, appear on the screen.
1: Now... The version of events, the summary of what Durst originally said was, Kathy and Durst were together in South Salem. They had a pushing and shoving argument. He put on a train back to the city. He then visited the mayors. He spoke with her by phone that evening. Her disappearance was her own fault. She was never heard from again. Now, when we eliminate the statements that only come from Durst and Susan Berman, or those that have otherwise been discredited, what remains of this statement?
0: He put her on a train back to the city. False, disappears from the screen. He then visited the mayor's. False, disappears from the screen. He spoke with her by phone that evening. False, disappears from the screen. Her disappearance was her own fault. False, disappears from the screen. Only three statements remain.
1: On January 31st, 1982, Bob Durf and his wife were together in South Sales that evening when she came home. They had a pushing and shoving argument. She was never heard from again.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.
1: So other than the stories initiated by Juris from Susan Berman, is there any other evidence that reasonably demonstrates that Kathy Durst made it back to New York, to the city, to the penthouse? The last person allegedly to have contact with Kathy was Dr. Albert Cooperman, who was the Associate Dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Dr. Cooperman is yet another witness who you're going to hear from. He's going to explain to you. Now, on Monday morning, there's evidence that he received a call between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. from someone who identified themselves as Kathy, saying that she had diarrhea and would not be making it to school that day. Now, telephone records from the Durst 37 Riverside Drive penthouse for that Monday do not show any such call.
0: Kathy was absent from rotations at the Pediatric Ambulatory Clinic on Monday, February 1st. Lewin tells the jury that they will hear testimony from Sophia Bachman, who ran the clinic at the time of Kathy's disappearance. In her now 40 years of experience, Dr. Bachman says she has never had a student fail to show up without calling the clinic itself. Lewin informs the jury that they will also hear from Kathy's classmate, Peter Halperin, who will testify that if a med student was sick, they would call the rotation, not the dean.
1: So, <laughs> Dr. Halperin's going to tell you that listen, for Kathy to have called the dean, it would be analogous to me calling the district attorney to say I'm not going to be at work today instead of my boss or whoever I'm going to be working with. And that's what the evidence will show. Now, During the original investigation Dr. Cooperman assumed and the investigators accepted it that in fact it was Kathy he had spoken to on the phone. Now the evidence is going to show that that was an absolutely incorrect assumption. During the original investigation there were certain important questions that Dr. Cooperman was never asked.
0: Dr. Cooperman had no reason to believe that the woman on the phone was lying about her identity, even if it was a little odd that she called him instead of the rotation. Lewin's fellow prosecutor, Habib Balian, questions Dr. Cooperman at an earlier hearing.
1: Your interactions personally with Kathleen Durst over the course of her entire medical career were approximately... 5 to 10 minutes. 5 to 10 minutes. Okay. Had you ever spoken with her on the telephone before? No. Had you ever heard her voice on a recording of any kind whatsoever before? No. So, are, are you able to say based on the voice that it was or wasn't Kathy Durst? No. Why did you think it was Kathy Durst called? She said she was Kathleen Durst. She said she was Kathleen Durst. Now, the evidence is gonna demonstrate that the reason that the dean was called was because Bob Durst did not know where Kathy was going to be that day. Did not know what hospital, did not know what location, and you're going to get that information directly from Bob Durst during the 2015 interview. If Kathy wasn't going to come in to, um, you know, let's say she was she was unavailable, she was sick, etc. Um, what you would have known is that she would need to call you know, the dean's office to say, hey, I can't come in, right? She would need to call somebody. Do, do you know who she would call? Do you have any idea? Yeah. But, but you would have known, hey, she could always call the dean of the medical school, Right? I do would know that, right? Yeah. So if Kathy didn't make the call to Dr. Cooperman, who did? Shortly after the call to Dean Cooperman was made and multiple times over the years, Susan Berman discussed the fact that she had made the call. She discussed it with a number of friends.
0: One of those friends was Miriam Barnes, Susan's neighbor in a small apartment building in Manhattan. In 1982, Miriam had an unsettling conversation with Susan. Lewin plays video of Miriam's testimony from a prior hearing. I got a phone
1: call from Susan to come up to her apartment right away. What exactly did she say when she was summoning you up with her plan? She was needed to problem? talk to me. Okay. Was there anything out of the ordinary about the way she summoned you up with her plan? There was a sense of urgency. She was, it, it took her a while to get it out. She was very nervous. And when Susan got nervous, she would pick at her lip. And, it, it, and
4: she said, I did something today. And did it for Bobby, and then her next statement was, If anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it.
0: Quote, If anything happens to me, Bob did it, end quote. Susan sounded scared of Robert Durst.
1: Now, the evidence is going to show that something was not going to happen to her for another approximately 18 years. But eventually, The evidence will show that the defendant cleaned up over the sand.
0: Eighteen years later, Susan was shot in the back of the head. According to the prosecution, it was Robert Durst who pulled the trigger. Coming up on the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst.
3: Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did, and we argued about that. And she said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone, we love Bob, we need to protect him. Tom,
2: Donald, Bridge, deep Bone, other, show the chick, this is my handwriting. You know, I have a feeling there's something out here. I have no idea what that means, what I was writing. And she found this in the trash around the time when and Kathy disappeared.
1: Unlike most people who... the stages of grief, denial, anger, and bargaining, Mr. Dirks went right into acceptance. So She's not coming back. And the evidence will show that He blew those materials out because he knew Kathy was talking like that.
0: Susan Berman moved to Los Angeles. After the success of her autobiographical novel, Easy Street, Susan had her sights set on becoming a Hollywood screenwriter.
1: That would be the peak of Susan's life. She was successful. She was marrying somebody she cared about. And from that day forward, her life, was going to head in a Hill
0: spiral. Frightened by the media attention and the possibility of being charged with murder, Durst decided to go into hiding. Went to
2: Dallas, went to the apartment, went, went to a wig store, tried on the wig. This looks pretty, pretty, pretty good. There's a hair here, and a hair here, um, a good shave, I'm going to be looking sort of like a woman. He said, the Los Angeles police contacted me and they want to talk to me about Kathy Durst's disappearance.
1: Now the evidence will demonstrate that it was that conversation, that statement by Susan Berman to Bob Durst that sealed her fate.
0: Jury Duty, the Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Taracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller, with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Tarricone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg-Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.